Hello, I'm Stuart Thomas. And I'm Tony Cosgrove. Together, we're on a journey to better understand a topic we have no knowledge of, but are fascinated by, human connection. To help us learn more, we'll be chatting with a wide variety of guests from around the world. From authors to healthcare professionals, community groups to psychologists, asking them to share their unique insights with us. At the end of our quest, we hope to have gathered together all of the ingredients that make up human connection to turn them into actionable and practical insights for you listening. Today, we are delighted to be talking to someone who has led a range of voluntary organisations for almost 30 years with a special interest in health, well-being, and loneliness. He started a campaign in 2011, which was a national drive to tackle the issue of isolation in older age. Paul Can, OBE, co-founder and now chair of the Campaign to End Loneliness. Welcome to the Human Connection Journey podcast. Great to be here. Now, Paul, at the start of every conversation we have, it's important to say we are genuinely students with a thirst for knowledge. So we came across Human Connection, we loved what we read, and we set out on a journey to learn even more. Therefore, to get us started, we have three questions we'd like to ask you. So... Without further ado, the first one is, tell us what the term human connection means to you. So the term connection means bonding, communicating, linking in a way which gives me meaning and purpose and enjoyment. Paul, you mentioned two or three items there. How is there a relative importance to all of these? Can you be connected with just one or is it like a fine cocktail where you need all the different ingredients to be blended together? Over the years, we've talked about different forms of loneliness, which is the kind of downside of not having social connection. And we've described it as often being sometimes emotional loneliness in terms of that single person that you relate to, that relationship that you Prize. We've talked about social loneliness, which is the feeling of belonging. And then there is the sort of existential loneliness of where am I in this universe? So all of those things about linking meaningfully in a way that is valued, in a way that you can enjoy, they are all crucial and they are profoundly needed. They are part of our evolution as human beings. And so I wouldn't put any particular weight on either one. We need them all. I think I picked up somewhere, Paul. I don't know whether you saw this as well, Tony, but one of the definitions that I saw, maybe on the Campaign to End Loneliness website, was you used the lovely phrase that it's the lack of or the loss of companionship. I love the word companionship, Paul. It's such an old-fashioned word, isn't it? But it's it's such a powerful word. What's companionship to you? Well, I think... um, It was never better expressed than by Esther Ranson. You will recall she set up the thing Childline, and then she went on to set up a thing for older people called the Silver Line, which was focused on loneliness. And she was moved to do that by the death of her husband and the feeling of bereavement and grief that she had so powerfully. And what she said was, because you can imagine Esther Ranson has quite a huge network of friends, She said, I've got lots of people I can do things with, but I've got nobody I can do nothing with. And I've always found that a very good way of capturing the emotional gap Mm. that people have. I would put it the other end of the spectrum and talk about companionship in a group where there is a feeling of belonging. 
and the feeling that you are part of a club which is very primitively embedded in us. And we've been doing this since the dawn of time. We have been coming together because we need to come together in a group in order to survive. And the American uh, psychologist John Cacioppo has written defining words about this evolutionary instinct to link in to a group, to be part of a group in order, partly to survive, but then also to derive comfort, to derive company, and increasingly, we hope, satisfaction and enjoyment. So that is why clubs and societies are so important. There is a recent school of thought that says that actually what's gone wrong in our society is we've lost that ability to come together and we've lost what you could call the common life. We don't have the same rituals and ways of gathering together in groups that we used to have at different stages in our history as we evolve. And you might describe this as an atomization of society, that people are getting more and more split up, more focused in their individual worlds, possibly with their own individual entertainment systems. Mm -hmm. But companionship is something elemental and sustaining and fun. Are you familiar with Esther Anson, Tony? Did you have the joy of watching her over in Ireland when you were growing up? Um, we didn't. Esther Ranson didn't make it across the Irish Sea, but I do know who she is because of her work on Chiline. She has been a, a very powerful force for, for in lots of people's lives, hasn't she? It, it is, it's just absolutely fascinating what you're saying. That It, it almost feels like you know, it's taken us, I don't know, 100,000 years to get to where we are today. And we've learned that none of us can do this on our own. And then, Paul, do you think it's just taken a few decades for us to learn a skill which up until now has been absolutely the difference between life and death? Well, I think we've had some of the skills and some of the methods of communication and thus coming together for quite a long time. I mean, the examples of music making in primitive tribes, you know, are very strong. And actually, if anything, I think our skills are declining. And of course, they particularly declined in COVID because we were no longer able to get out and about. And we are no longer able to touch, to hold, to be close to people, uh, which is, I think, so fundamental. It's, it's a very primal instinct we have. And of course, these days, we're more fearful of that touch. Mm. Um, that human contact with one another. So I think, if anything, our skills in these ways have degenerated rather than enhanced. However, we have certainly developed greater sophistication of language and communication over time. We have learned more. We have become better educated for the vast majority. So in that sense, we're getting better but I think that the concern for us, the Campaign to End Loneliness or the Global Initiative, is to support people to retain the skills and the confidence and the instinct to connect. That will make sure that they don't feel lonely and cut off, which so many, many people at different stages and different ages have felt. And that was what prompted uh, me and others to set up the campaign to end loneliness in the first place, because this was the story we were getting every day. People who felt life had left them behind, they had no human contact, 
Television was their main source of company. And for older people with increasing infirmity, this was a desperate issue which we felt we had to address. So we were moved to set up the campaign. And staying with older people for a minute, because I do want to talk about younger people. Older people have also been left behind with the newer technologies of communication and those new skills. And of the something like 4 million older people who are not online in the UK, and you know, whilst younger people were able to respond to the deprivation of direct contact during COVID and exploit, you know, things like Zoom, things like virtual events, virtual choirs, virtual whatever, older people very often struggled. And so we've got ground to catch up in regaining those skills. I think COVID was um, must be an amazing, very sad and much regretted laboratory for all things to do with loneliness. Like many people, I've got friends and family a little bit younger than me who've got younger kids. And I didn't realise how much of what we do is learned. I just thought it would be automatic. But these kids who, who weren't exposed to groups of people, to family, to society, they really didn't know how to interact. They didn't know how to connect with the people about them. You know, even now, a couple of years on, they are still lagging behind. I just thought it was an, an innate skill. I didn't realise we had to almost kind of be taught and be socialised how to do it. And that, that's just kind of blown me away. I guess without that investment, we're going to see those people struggle for a long time. So this is where technology, I think, has been both a divider and a great asset. And that experience of going through COVID and, re- and returning to something approaching normality was quite traumatic for people. My own son said he'd sort of forgotten how to make conversation um, in a one-to-one situation because, you know, for months and months and months, he'd been locked away in a flat in London on his own, uh, no garden to sit out in and no way of connecting with people. Hmm. So, I mean, it is something which younger people, older people, people of any age crave because it is, as Cacioppo said, it is kind of hardwired in our evolution. We have grown to need it. But unfortunately, different things have conspired to make us further apart from one another. The technology dilemma is quite an interesting one. And there's a woman from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology who wrote a book which is entitled Alone Together. Because for a lot of us, the experience is we are connected online, but we don't actually meet people face-to-face quite often. It's fascinating how many organizations do a lot of their work online. People work from home a lot. That can work very, very well, for example, with you trying to run a small family. But it can also be that uh, experience of distancing and uh, you know, people uh, feeling that they are degenerating in terms of their communication skills. And I think the um, actually, although the younger people were able to take advantage of the technology a bit more during COVID, and my example of that is the stunning online virtual choir that I was connected with, which was recording synchronized to real-time experiences online of singing together and getting all of that connection. They did feel lonelier, according to the research. Younger people 
were deprived of their usual hanging out with people, going out, you know, a natural thing to do the social networks. And so actually loneliness levels were reported as highest in younger people. And that's something that we're concerned to ensure that loneliness is a universal and therefore that we take action across the range. And why one of the priorities of the campaign to end loneliness is going to be a big deal for us getting under the skin of that. And why across the world in different organizations, we're hearing about young loneliness. One more example is I mentioned the silver line for older people. And that is echoed in various places, for example, in Germany, by a thing called Silbernetz. These are helplines for seniors. But in Japan, fantastically, they have a web chat availability 24-7, 70% of the users of whom are younger people. So we are starting to bring younger people into this particular quest. And there has been a campaign in recent years called Lonely, Not Alone, which is about young people uh, feeling connected better. It is mad, isn't it, that you look at Japan, you know, one of the economic powerhouses of the world, one of the most digitally native places in the world, the cutting edge of anything. So many people and they feel still feel so lonely. It's a very important message to, to share with people, isn't it? And they have a phenomenon in Japan, which is quite alarmingly well established. I mean, Japan is the most aging of the populations across the world. And they have this phenomenon of lonely deaths or aging deaths where people die and are undiscovered for often for days, weeks, and sometimes years. This was also the case in Australia, if I can mention a thing that started in Australia when a lady living in a suburb of Sydney, I think it was, died, her body had not discovered for a long time. The horror of the understanding that and discovering that prompted Australians to set up something called Neighbour Day. And this was the idea that, you know, once a year, as autumn arrives, you know, you get less light, you will be encouraged to go and knock on your neighbour's door. And in the original text, it was invite them in for a beer and a barbie. And uh, that was a good initiative, which has now become actually, interestingly, neighbours every day in Australia. So it is a thing across the industrial world. Um, One thing that I'm very concerned that we should do, however, is ensure that countries across the world are also brought into the global initiative. Because, as I say, it's a universal. And we know from talking to colleagues who uh, run organizations dealing with low to middle income countries that it's certainly an issue. There are other big, big issues about survival, about war, about economic instability, about climate change. But certainly the problem of loneliness is a universal. Just to get it sort of explicit so we understand it as these kind of novices, why does human connection matter? Um, Originally, because if we didn't come together, we were vulnerable to being picked off in tribes we needed to look out for each other in a very primitive sense it matters now because we know that people who don't feel they have friends or family that they connect with feel less happy levels of misery 
are highest in those who report themselves to be lonely all or most of the time. We know that that is significant statistically, a large number of people. It's a minority of the population at any one time, but people who feel that they are cut off, and it matters uh, because it makes you miserable. Paul, I can't believe too many people are against sorting this out. You know, I don't think there is a, a competing campaign to promote loneliness out there, is there? What are the blockers to sorting this? I mean, the first thing is the public awareness. And when we started to form the campaign to end loneliness, there wasn't a great deal of public awareness and indignation about this problem. This may sound really, really odd, but in the early 2000s, it was not something that featured very highly in the media or in public policy. And we needed to get it up there. We needed to raise the profile. So the campaign was trying simultaneously to raise awareness in low awareness contexts and to get across to public authorities and organizations more generally that loneliness has health impacts. So very authoritative research in the States has established significantly higher Mm. mortality odds, if I can put it like that, if you are lonely, isolated, or living alone. These three categories have been researched in research that covers millions of people. Weak social connections make you more likely to be unwell. And it was the strength of evidence of that and the sense of urgency about that which shifted public authorities, governments at all levels, health services, towards doing something about it. It's not that you have anybody opposing this, although there are some critics of some of the language of loneliness. It's not that people actively oppose it. It's just that they were not persuaded that this was as big a deal as the level of the state pension or the care package or youth unemployment. Do you see what I mean? So that was what we had to move forward. And some success has been had by that and by a whole range of organizations. There have been some stunning leaders and leading agencies. I know, Paul, that you set up the campaign uh, to end loneliness in the UK in, was it 2011? Yeah. What was your journey to that point? What kind of took you to that point and compelled you to start the campaign? Working for the predecessor charity to Age UK, which is called Help the Aged, hearing every day, people say things like, Paul, the days are very, very long when the walls are the same. I always remember that particular phrase to describe the imprisonment of loneliness. And that was became a sort of deafening chorus that several of us working with older people felt. We therefore had to do more than work in our own individual silos. We had to come together. And we found a foundation that really got it and said to itself and ourselves, we will be here to fund, support, and launch the campaign. So had they not got a number of us recalcitrant voluntary sector people round the table, we might not have made that progress. I want to give 
and the Kaluist Gulbenkian Foundation credit for that. Um, so it was that vision. And then it was a number of different things. There are champions, of course, two politicians I will mention. One is called Julia Neuberger, who read our research on the growing levels of loneliness amongst older people. She was so angry about it that she summoned me over to the House of Lords and basically told me to, that we must get our act together. And that championship mattered for a great deal. But an even bigger champion and a tragic champion of the issue was Joe Cox MP, who had set up in Yorkshire the Joe Cox Commission on Loneliness because she saw it all over the place wherever she went. She always said this very remarkable thing in her maiden speech, which I come back to again and again, which sums up this thing about connection. She said, as I travel around my constituency, I find that we are so much more united and have so much in, more in common than that which divides us. And that phrase, more in common, took root, really. It fired people up. And uh, I went to the reception at number 10, where the Joe Cox Commission report was received, and where the then Prime Minister said, we will not betray this, we will not desert you. And um, out of that came the loneliness strategy in 2018. It's a terrible thing that a tragedy should have such a turbocharging positive impact, but it did. And the Joe Cox Foundation is alive and well and doing great things now. And Tony, didn't you flag to me that there was actually a minister for loneliness in the UK? Paul will know very well. It was um, Conservative MP from Kent, Tracy Couch, who I must say, uh, I am not political in any way, but I do wish we had more politicians like Joe Cox and Tracy Couch, because I think they are both people of dignity who stood up for things which are unpopular and have put the general public in front of their own career. And I, I would tip my hat to both of them. Oh, I totally agree. And the first loneliness minister was Tracy who, of course, resigned on a totally different matter, but resigned as a matter of principle. Uh, there have been subsequent ministers who have also worked very hard, um, and the current one, Stuart Andrew, is seriously committed to this and recognises the value. The problem we have now, and the urgency of this recording, I think, is that there is a danger that we go off the boil. We've made some good progress. It is on the map. It must be the case that many fewer people are totally disconnected than was the case 10 years ago. The difficulty is sometimes people get fatigued and they maybe get bored with the issue. You know, I've heard enough about this issue. I'm fed up with the problems. You know, tell me solutions. And that politicians have to move on to the next bright and shiny issue. So there is a danger of losing focus and attention and energy uh, on this subject. I think that is the biggest thing. And in terms of keeping that energy going, I think I saw on, you're active in so many areas, Paul, it was, it was difficult to know which, which of the websites that you were accredited on. But we talk about how people can get involved. And one of them was, you know, be an advocate in the area that you're busy and, and that you do your thing. We do our thing in the area of work where people spend 90,000 hours of their lives. What do you think work can do to help reduce loneliness, improve human connection? So we recently produced a report with the British Red Cross, which on this very subject of loneliness in the workplace, 
And it was a big encouragement to employers to recognize the importance of the well-being of their staff and therefore to find ways of bringing them together, of listening to what they had to say, to creating opportunities for people to connect. And the best employers do do this. And the other activity that I think is very powerful for people in the workplace and outside is to be involved in something, to give back through volunteering or to take part in something that gives you involvement and agency. One of my favorites is a thing called Good Gym. I don't know if you've heard of Good Gym, and that's G-Y-M. But this is about combining the value of physical exercise with doing something in the community and connecting. So typically, a good gym local organization is not a gymnasium. It's a club. It's like a running club, but where you go out and you interrupt your run or you finish your run and do something like call in on somebody, have a cup of tea with them, chat, and just give them a feeling that they're not alone. Or go and help build a community center or something that is about building community. It's interesting that Good Gym only exists in the UK. When I looked, I couldn't find any examples of it outside. And it needs to be uh, more widely practiced. And of course, it's quite intergenerational because you get quite a lot of young people connecting with older people who are stuck at home. And intergenerational links are something that make quite a big difference to loneliness and we could do more of. So I think volunteering of that kind and many other kinds is crucial. I think taking part in activities which bring you into contact with one another. So I mentioned choirs, and I'm big on choirs. I sing a lot. But it's also like taking part in an arts class or a drama group or something creative that enables you to express yourself. And we know from the research that when people do that, they feel more fulfilled. They also feel better bonded with their fellow human beings. Now, employers can encourage that. They can help set it up. They can create opportunities. But I think I go back to this word listening, which is so very important, to be listening out for the well-being of the people you are with. And employers should do that. There is this now in the health service, there's this new initiative called social prescribing. And this is the idea that it's based on 20% of visits to GP practices in this country have primarily a non-medical issue. And we need to deal with the 20%. And actually, if we dealt with the 20% better, then that would take a bit of strain off the health services. So social prescribing is basically a link worker in a practice, in a surgery somewhere, who mm. listens to the patient talking. And if you listen for long enough, you find that actually it's not so much their arthritis, which really troubles them. It's the fact that nobody cares whether they get up tomorrow. And helps thereby to connect them with whatever it is that they might find fulfilling. I think the one thing just to say as well, Paul, is that again, looking at your website, there's research, isn't there, in terms of the actual real cost to business 
from loneliness. I know you talk about poor mental health. It affects sleep quality, um, affects mortality. But wasn't there a figure of around two and a half billion pounds as being the, the kind of the financial impact of, of all of this on organizations? Yeah, I think if you have unhappy people working for you, they're going to be more costly. There's going to be perhaps greater levels of depression, loss of productive time, uh, less than good relationships, more rapid turnover. All of these things uh, go to make up costs, which could be avoided because, as you said a while ago, nobody's against reducing loneliness, and we just need to find ways of doing it in all the settings. And maybe the workplace is a setting that we have come to later than others. You know, we started with older people, typically people who are retired. We started thinking about the 75-plus group where there is quite a likelihood of some kind of loss, loss of health, loss of partner, Mm -hmm. loss of connection, whatever. And gradually, we have extended our work to embrace younger people, lonely, not alone, and the employers and people at work. And of course, that was given a bit of a boost in a way as an issue by the experience of COVID, which uh, so many young people found very, very isolated, more so than the older people because their normal social networks didn't operate in quite the same way. You might argue that older people were used to being cut off and used to being ignored. That would not be good either. But certainly it had a big impact on young people. So at the moment, we're trying to ask the question, what would young people most want? And there's no single answer to that. There's as many answers as there are young people. But that is what we're wrestling with at the moment. Stuart, it's like so many things that we see when we um, when we go around work, because one of the beauties of our life is that we get to speak to lots of employers and lots of employees. So we kind of we get to circulate around the system a lot. And it is one of those things, I think, Stuart, isn't it, where nobody loses when you get this right. You know, you can just see innovation goes up, happiness goes up, service goes up. You know, let's not run away from the fact that companies need to make money at the end of the year. So profits go up, waste goes down. Do you know, everybody wins if you get this right. I think we just need to be part of an environment that just is, makes it easier for people to get it right because it's it seems like we're hardwired to do this kind of thing. There is a question about what are our priorities. So this is mm. great phrase. We need to see beyond GDP. Some countries have actually developed indices of well-being because they recognise how fundamentally important that is. So I, th- I think a big message is it's, it's within us. We want to connect. We need to connect. And therefore, we need to find ways of reaching out. Now, there is a very inspiring and lively commentator called Gillian Sandstrom, to give you one example, who talks about random acts of kindness and talking to strangers. Of course, it's a not uncontroversial subject, but Gillian's argument is that actually, if you do reach out, if you do find a way of connecting uh, with other people, it's better for that person, it's better for you. And Mm. the benefits far outweigh the risks. So her work on uh, talking to strangers, and that whole thing about random acts of kindness, and about weak ties, you know, the ties of 
just meeting somebody in the street every day, the barista experience, et cetera, et cetera, and how weak ties have an incredibly strong effect. So I think it's within ourselves. You know, we can take action, we can reach out, and we actually want to reach out. Some of us, like me, are more buttoned up than others and find it harder. Let me tell you a very short true story about weak ties. My son came back from Fiji yesterday. He's been in Fiji for 85 days working out there, and he came back jet-lagged, as you can imagine, and he was trying to stay awake. So we walked around the block just to kind of keep the, the body moving, and we bumped into our postie at the end of our road, and she said, is it nice to have him back? I didn't even know she knew that he was gone, but it brought joy yeah. to my heart that he had been missed from our little village. And um, Stuart, as we've been talking about human connection, I think more and more we have understood the importance of micro moments, haven't we? Gestures, a tip of the hat, a few short words from your postie. They're incredibly important. Well, I, I was in Dublin at the start of this week and there's a, a pub that Tony and I have a great fondness for because we do like um, a certain Irish drink. And um, we've not been there for four or five months, I would say. And um, I walked in there on Monday evening at about 10 o'clock and the guy behind the bar, he wouldn't have a clue of my name. And he just went, hello, good to see you again. Were you in last week? And I went, no, no, it's been a few months. Oh, anyway, do you want your usual? <laughs> and, you know, what's that old television program, Cheers? You know, where yeah. the, the song says, it's nice to go somewhere where everybody kind of knows your name. It was ex yeah. absolutely that moment. It was wonderful. And that is something that so many people want. They want to have that Cheers group. They want to connect mm -hmm. somehow. Uh, I'm reading a book at the moment that talks about friends because there's a similar thing about society of people and how they, you know, help each other, get together, have fun together, though their ultimate objective may not be to live with one another. But you mentioned postman, and I think in any community, there is a range of people that you would not necessarily think of as social workers or people having a social role. But postmen, hairdressers, people in churches, people in pubs, uh, these are all agents working for us to come closer together. And I really wish we could find ways of coming closer together and affirming the fact that we have, as Joe Cox said, more in common than that which divides us. At a time when, unfortunately, quite a lot of public discourse, I'm thinking media, I'm thinking politics is tending to polarize us, to drive us apart. And I think we need to overcome that with the, some of the ordinary connections that we can make. I mean, I live in a village and we set up a, a good neighbor scheme, which simply, it does basic things, gives people lifts to hospital. But it is a very basic on the ground thing about the help that actually many people need, find it difficult to ask for. And I would say that our scheme, which is called Hooky Neighbours, is not a scheme, it's not an organisation, it's not an initiative, it's a behaviour that we've all got that neighbourliness in us. Some of us will respond to the WhatsApp message and say, yeah, I'll give Joan a lift to the hospital next Tuesday. Just picking up on that, Paul, can I ask you, does the phrase, the street knows best, does that resonate with you? If I heard you use that in the past, what does it mean? Well, I, it's a very good phrase, so I'd like to claim it as mine, but it probably isn't. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think it makes an important point about the local communities, and we are quite a top-down society. 
And during COVID, we found that actually hooky neighbors on the street, we knew what was going on. And even so-called local organizations were sort of trying to lobby and help well-meaningly, but actually what they call the hyper-local, I think this is the buzz phrase for it, the hyper-local agencies and outfits, which just work on a street or two, are the way things can happen and the way the magic of connection can happen. And you can get these local effects. I wonder, Stuart, if that's something that we can learn from when we go back into workplaces. You know, the street knows best, the the shift knows best, the, the small working cell who in manufacturing, they know best. The hyper-local can be really effective. It doesn't have to be driven. In fact, maybe it shouldn't be driven by 18 mm. tiers above where the people need some support. And this calls for a certain humility and an ability to listen. And there's a lot of stuff where... People say, I know what the answer is, you know, blah, blah, because I once met somebody who was lonely, uh, as opposed to sitting down with people and listening to what they're saying at a moment in time. I think the problem with research and understanding communities and understanding the needs is that it takes time. I once did a project where we commissioned a university to go out and listen to people talking about poverty and what poverty meant to them. And they were asked to go and talk to the so-called hard-to-reach groups, if you've heard that phrase. Um, mm. And they came back after three months and said, you know, these hard-to-reach groups, they're very hard to reach. Can we have another three months? And it was taking the time, and therefore I'm afraid there's a resource thing, to listen and do the proper research rather than get one tokenistic person around a table and assume that they know everything there is to know about that population. Mm. Interested, interested. And there's, I'm, I'm trying to um, avoid going into sort of work mode and coming up with solutions, but my mind is spinning like a top, but I'm very mindful of time. And so as we kind of nudge towards the edge of our conversation today, Paul, we'd like to ask you to leave us with a gift. That's right. We'd like you to share with us the one essential ingredient that makes up human connection, in your opinion. And so by the end of all of our conversations on our journey, we hope to have a list of high quality ingredients that we can share to inspire others to join the human connection movement. So, Paul, over to you. What's that one essential ingredient that you'd like to gift us with? The message, don't be afraid to reach out. You know, it's quite hard, particularly for British buttoned up people like me. Don't be afraid to make that conversation with that random stranger. I'm doing it increasingly, forcing myself to do it. And it always works. It's always great. And it's good for both the person I talk to, I think, and myself. Don't be afraid to reach out is perhaps the most important message. But this is a final, final message would be, this is for all of us. We have a phrase, loneliness is everyone's business, social connection is everyone's business. And that's why I think it's so important that at all levels in society, we are engaged. And that is why the very exciting global developments now with the US and Japan and Denmark and places developing their own loneliness strategies. But why at government level, you have to have strategies. You have to have things that the government can do to help and the government can stop itself from doing, which would not help. And you go down 
through tiers of government, to local government at different levels, and to the health service. These are all part of this. The local communities are part of this. Loneliness is their business too. And finally, we need to ourselves navigate our own loneliness. There are some things that we just will not be changed for us. We can't change. Uh, bereavement is a very, very powerful example. We have to get better, I think, at understanding our own loneliness. So we've done a lot of work on the psychological aspects of loneliness. When we launched the report to launch the campaign, we talked about the four-leaf clover. Uh, I hope that will go down in the Irish context. The idea was, and there are more than four leaves, unfortunately, that you would have these different levels all connecting. And unless it all hangs together, unless you have a system, then the danger is you'll just have isolated people making tea or going to the pub running book clubs, which is one thing I do, or doing this or that. But it will be actually, in the end, undermined if you don't have help from central government policies, from what the local authority is doing to light your streets and design places that people want to come together in. If you don't have the health service making social prescribing work, if you don't have community organisations that have really got this in their bloodstream, and if you yourself are not taking steps to become more resilient, then it, the whole thing will not work as a whole. Thank you very much for that gift, Paul. That's the end of today's Human Connection Journey podcast. A huge thank you for you joining us today. And thank you to our listeners for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation and we hope you'll join us next time as we continue our quest to better understand human connection.